Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. We are going to pick up, hopefully, where you left off last week. Now, as we're um, moving towards jumping into the actual text, a few things to keep in mind. Um, where we're picking up today is with Jesus in Galilee, which is a region about 75 miles north of Jerusalem. And we know that he had been preaching and teaching all around this area. This was something he was doing. And I don't know kind of what, where you've been going in the book of Matthew, but there's this really cool crescendo thing that's starting to happen after chapter 8 and 9. There's like this shift in the text. And Jesus is now not, not ending his ministry, but kind of mellowing out and heading towards Jerusalem. Like all the authors and the scholars say, like, this is his turn turning point where he's starting to make his way to Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to be crucified um, and, and move into that space. So this is Jesus now ministering in the region as he's beginning his journey to um, Jerusalem. And at the beginning of chapter 11, we found Jesus addressing the doubt of John the Baptist, a prophet and a man who Jesus himself said was one of the greatest men in the kingdom. And then at the end of this section, we find an invitation from Jesus uh, to trust him amidst the doubt and the uncertainty of life, which I think in many ways will set us up for the rest of our text this evening. So with that, would you look at verse 16 with me? That's where we'll pick up. Jesus is continuing to talk to the people that are around him, and he says, To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds." And then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. And at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, or another way to say that is intelligent, and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Familiar, yeah? Some of that, <laughs> some of it not so much. Uh, we are going to work through the text today, line by line, and then we're going to circle back at the end uh, to what I think Jesus is after for us in this text. Um, so it's going to be a little bit of work. I'll try to make it spicy and interesting, um, but, but just stay with me, okay? Are ready? We're going to pick up verse 16 to 19. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge whatever, man, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. 
Again, like I mentioned before, this is Jesus wrapping up his conversation, and he does so with an illustration. He basically compares the unbelieving people of the day with pouty kids who didn't like the game that was being played in the schoolyard. And he goes on to explain in verse 17, Jesus begins speaking about this man, John, this prophet, who he had just had this elaborate interaction with in the verses prior. And he was known, John, for being a little bit more traditional uh, with his life and his ministry. He was a notably more serious man. As we look at John's life through the scriptures, we can see that he's someone who's a little bit intense. He lived in the wilderness. He was a little bit more isolated than he was social. And um, I'm pretty sure we're not... We're not, well, I, I would say this, we're not sure that John would have, like, actually showed up to a party. He wasn't, like, the fun guy or the cool guy, right? He was just, like, the guy we're like, that's John. And when he talks about the kingdom, he's, like, not playing around about what it's going to cost for those who would come into it. So John has this, like, really intense presence, and the text is pointing us to that in verse 17. This is like this darker language, this idea of a dirge and mourning and all this stuff. And so Jesus goes on. He basically says, look, John came in the right way or the way that you would expect a prophet to come, and yet you had an excuse like to reject him claiming he had a demon, which I guess is what you do when you don't like someone's message. And this was basically their way of saying that they really didn't like what he had to say or how he was saying it or how he was presenting it to him, and so they rejected it. And then Jesus goes on in verse 19, he refers to himself, and he says, look, I came in a very different way than John did. I was social, at least by the standards of the day, but you didn't like my choice of company. I ate and I drank among you, and still you rejected me, saying I was on the other extreme. I am a glutton and a drunkard. And I think as I was studying this text um, a week and a half ago, I was like, blown away and very judgmental if I'm being like this is a full confession but when I think about the reality of these um, men and women having one of the greatest prophets to ever live in their midst at least we know for at least for a few months if not years and Jesus the Messiah in their midst and yet still had reason to be critical or unimpressed with them I was like these people are idiots like the whole time I was reading I was like these people are so dumb and I was telling God all the reasons why they were so dumb and how he's so blessed to have me as his daughter and um um, and yet, it was, it was really beautiful. At the end of the week, I was studying, and I was, again, being like, <laughs> stupid people. And, um, which is not kind, by the way, to say in your head. But anyway, I was judging them deeply. And the Spirit came over me and said, you do this to me all the time. Like, all the time, you find reasons to be critical and unimpressed with the work that I'm doing in and around you. So anyway... Uh, from this text, I think that's helpful maybe for us to think about, but from this text it seems that, that both John and Jesus, for some, and I think arguably many, had become more of a passing interest than something that led to a new way of living. It became, I think, more about fascination than actual faith for the people who were listening that day. And so Jesus was calling it out. And, and really, in calling it out, he was offering one more chance for them to embrace a different kingdom vision that, that, than they had been holding onto. Now, real quick, look down at the end of verse 19. There's this phrase that says, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Or another way of saying this um, is wisdom is vindicated by all her children. That's found in Mark. There's all these different um, all different ways of saying that. I'm not even going to try to. And, um, and so here, this is basically Jesus reiterating his point. And um, in, the, in the South, at least, or in, and maybe you say it here, I don't even know. I, I don't hear people say it very often, but we say the proof is in the pudding. Do you say that? No. Okay, well, 
Some of you do, and I think it's a very helpful phrase. That's what Jesus is saying here. So that's the translation. And so moving on, I'm just kidding. Uh, proof isn't the pudding, I think is something he might say. Um, and uh, what he's saying is, you'll know those who are really in the kingdom by their actions and by their lifestyle, by their response to the message of the actual kingdom. Scripture says that the starting place for wisdom is learning to fear God, and that wisdom is the application both of knowledge and understanding. So those who are wise will enter into life in the kingdom, and it will be proven by their deeds. That's what Jesus is saying. Make sense? Yeah. Now, it's interesting for us to note um, that the people's disinterest affected John and Jesus in very different ways. For John, it contributed to a really genuine space of doubt about Jesus himself. And for Jesus, it, it led to both a lament and a warning for the people. Look at verse 20. It says, then Jesus began to denounce towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Look up. Sodom, by the way, if you're like, I don't know, what's that? Um, that's an Old Testament town that God executed judgment on. And there was so much evil, there was so much wickedness happening there that God was like, I've got to destroy it and get it off the earth because it's just so vile. So everyone who was listening would have known what Sodom was. You've heard Sodom with Gomorrah those two things? Yeah, that's the same thing he's talking about here. So he says, Sodom would have remained to this day if they had had what you had, which was like a pretty strong statement. Verse 24, but I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Another big statement. Okay, so Jesus goes on and he offers what N.T. Wright says are the most sober and serious words that Jesus ever said. Right out the gate, Jesus um, offers and speaks of his disapproval and his disappointment of the cities in that area. And I want you to note that Jesus wasn't talking about these cities to the people. He was talking directly to them. And he starts with those where he ministered most. You see, this was personal for Jesus. He knew the people in the towns that he was speaking to. This wasn't just some abstract, lost out there like you guys are. He knew these people. These people were his friends and his neighbors. It was the baker where he bought the bread, the people he knew from synagogue. The cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida were walkable from Jesus' hometown. They were places where his ministry was alive and vibrant. He was doing really amazing things. So when Jesus compares Tyre and Sidon um, to, which were cities that a lot of people knew were pagan and godless in nature, they were receiving the message, and it was very clear. Um, in verse 23, Jesus goes on, he addresses Capernaum, a city that you should be like slightly familiar with. It comes up a lot because it was so central to Jesus' life and ministry. And this is a fun fact. It was, it was so central to what he did and kind of how he was, you know, executing his ministry that the town almost made a motto of lifted to heaven, that phrase you see in the text, um, because of their sense of civic pride from having Jesus' ministry in their town. Hence why Jesus calling them out is very provocative in this space. And there's a lot I could say about that, and I won't say much except that we see Jesus clearly condemning the pride of believing you are a Christian town or a Christian nation simply because you have the motto. Now, he goes on, and he says it would be better for Capernaum to be Sodom on the day of judgment than to be themselves. Why? 
Because unlike Sodom, they had seen and experienced him and his presence and still rejected his way of life, the way of the kingdom. And here's the point. These towns had been there for it all. And yet despite all the remarkable things he had done, they were still bent on going their own way, on following their own vision of God's kingdom. And Jesus knew where that would lead. Jesus is never interested in the sponsoring of his presence. He is only interested in the response to it. He's interested in life change, which is why this is a very serious and poignant moment for Jesus. Jesus goes on, he speaks about judgment, which is a word that in our culture, our day and age, we do not like. It makes a lot of us uncomfortable. But you've got to wrap your head around this part of judgment, especially in this text. Jesus is not scolding the broken and the repentant here. He is judging those for whom in his presence they are not making a decision to repent and be changed by him. Jesus always uses the message of judgment to lead us to the message of salvation. That's how it works, and that's exactly what's happening in this text. Stanley Hauerwas, a scholar on the book of Matthew, put it this way. Only through judgment are we forced to discover forms of life that can free us from our enchantment with sin and death. No doubt, I think for all of us in this room, it would be easier to want a gospel of love that ensures when everything is said and done, that everyone and everything is going to be okay. But as one scholar so beautifully and simply put it, we are not okay. Now from here, Jesus shifts gears in our text, and he moves from talking to the people to talking to God. Maybe a little abrupt, but a lot of us do it sometimes. More specifically in our cars we do it, but in other places too. Have you ever been on the phone with someone in the car and you're like, yeah, so da 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 what are, you know, like whatever. I mean, I don't do that, but I've seen other people do it. And it's really distracting. Look at verse 25. <laughs> at that time, Jesus said, I praise you. Or another way to say that in the, the Greek there is I thank you, Father. It's, a, it's an act of thanksgiving. Um, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned or the intelligent and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, it can feel like a bit of an abrupt change, like I said, but this is a really important shift in our text. Jesus now turns his focus to heaven and he thanks his Father for hiding the secrets of the kingdom to those who think they are wise and intelligent and revealing them to the children instead. Howard Wass, our Matthew scholar, noted that the reference here to the wise and intelligent are often names for the power and violence employed to sustain our illusions of superiority. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Simply, he's saying that the reality of the kingdom won't be found by those who think they know what it is or what it should be. But it will be actually just the opposite. It will be like Uh, like kids playing in a schoolyard. It will be for the children, the humble and the dependent, those who are in need, those who are open, and those who are full of faith. Now in verse 27, something important happens, another little shift, and we find Jesus making another claim that he is in fact the Messiah they've been waiting for. So here he is. Remember, he's headed to Jerusalem, and he's sitting in front of all these people who have yet to come into the kingdom, and he says, and listen, Friendly reminder, if you have seen me, you have actually seen God. That's what he's saying right here. Um, And he's, he's making a claim. It's not roundabout. It's actually clear. Dale Bruner, another scholar, he said it like this. 
the saying, no one really knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, is the moment where Jesus is placed on the side of the Father in contrast to all humanity. This was a defining moment in the life of Jesus. And what we read here tells us that the Father is and has been fully revealed through the Son. Or as one scholar beautifully put it, in and through Jesus, God gets a face. (laughs) And not only that, but here we get this unique glimpse and perspective into Jesus' relationship with the Father. We see him coming to him as a son, which is really important as we transition into our next space in the scriptures. Um, because he's coming like a, like a child. He, he's appealing. He's just, he goes right to the father. He's not spewing some religious rhetoric. He's not spewing quotes that he's heard from a book. But he comes listening to the voice of the father, but also speaking out like a kid to his dad. And this is really important as we move on to verse 28. So now Jesus has made the claim, I am the Messiah. And I know that many of us are familiar with this verse. Maybe you've seen it stitched and framed in your Nana's house. I don't really know. Or maybe you've had it sent to you in seasons of hardship or distress, whatever your familiarity with this verse, I don't want you to miss how it fits into our text tonight. In verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the first thing we see here is an invitation. There's this language of come to me or come follow me. And this was Jesus' go-to language for the people who would come and find healing through their apprenticeship to him. And who's he calling? He's calling to the weary and the burdened, those who are tired and burned out, those who are worn out and stressed, those who are aching at their core to be saved from the burdens of this life. And the question we should ask when we come to this text is one that the people of the day probably were asking. Who has the right to invite us to such a thing? And when we consider all the verses leading up to this moment and the ones that just came prior to it, the answer is the Messiah. And Jesus had just declared to them that he has the right to invite them into this space. The word yoke in our text refers to a common rabbinic idiom Uh, In the first century, it's odd imagery for those of us who don't live in an agrarian society. Some of you might. I don't know. Like, maybe you live closer to farm fields or whatever. Um, But but either way, we don't really live in an agrarian society. So it's like a weird kind of concept for us. Um, But I think it's actually really powerful nonetheless. I want you to think of two oxen yoked together, pulling a cart to plow a field. Can you get that in your head? Maybe. I'm going to help you in a second. Don't panic if you're like, no, and then don't, you're not failing anything. But what I want you to get is that a yoke is how you shoulder a load. That's basically what it means, like how you actually are carrying the load behind you. Now, in context, this is really bizarre language for an invitation to find rest. Yokes are for work. That's what they're actually for. Dale Bruner offered this insight into this paradox when he said, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need the least. They need a mattress or a vacation. Amen? Yes, amen. Not a yoke, but Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give to the tired is a new way to carry that life, a fresh way to bear the responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a life of succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. 
a rabbi's yoke, just so you have an idea, um, was an idiom for the way he read or understood the Torah. And, um, and it wasn't just that. So I don't want you to get fixated on, like, this is how Jesus read it. That's what it means, take his yoke. That's not it. It's actually more about how he understood how to live life and live it out in the reality of the kingdom. Or, or a simpler way to say that is this is how Jesus was telling us how to be a human, how to actually flourish in our day-to-day lives. And this invitation of him is to do just that, to take his yoke in exchange for ours and to shoulder life with him. Now, I've got an image for you that I think will be really helpful. Aren't they cute? These are oxen, which I have come to find out. Last week I was really struggling to find out what family they're from. Is it cows? Is it? I didn't know. I like, did not know my farm culture. And so they are cows in the family of cows. And um, this is, I don't, do you see, can you tell that one's bigger than the other? Yeah, it's like, that's a, that was really hard to find. You would not believe how difficult it was to find this picture. But that, that wooden thing between them is a yoke. Now, if you're like, I can't do animals, it's too oppressive and it's stressing me out. Okay, um, let me give you another picture because I think that'll be helpful. I am actually 5'9 without my heels on. I'm more like six foot with my heels, but I am 5'9 in real life. And, um, and I have a niece who's about two and a half feet tall. Her name's Naomi, and she's really wonderful and very spicy. And if Naomi was standing next to me and I was standing next to her and, and we were like, let's share a yoke, we would put the yoke, we would put the yoke on. And it would be a little bit like this, honeybee, which is what she calls me here, and Naomi here. And it would kind of be lopsided because I would be not wearing my heels and she would, we'd be more level. But, but when the load, when we had to like mush forward or whatever, like pull the load forward, um, who do you think would be doing most of the lifting, the pulling? Honeybee. Honeybee's doing all, it's like, mm, and she's like, this is awesome. And I'm like, so awesome. Almost dead. Half dead. Um, honeybee is not built for pulling things like this. But if we were pulling it and Naomi was next to me, it was like, and we were going and going. Naomi would be like, this is so fun. And she'd be talking up at me like, let's get ice cream. Like, let's do this. This is, uh, yolks are so easy. Let's keep going. Like, what do you want to talk about? Let's, and, and in that space, I would be like pulling the load and talking with Naomi. Now, she is attached to the yoke with me. But I'm doing most of the load. And the image I want you to get here is much like this one and also the one I'm describing. When Jesus is talking about taking his yoke upon you, it's more like that. It's him bearing the brunt of the, the, the load and you being two and a half feet tall and being like, this is so cool and awesome. And he's like, yeah. And, you know, he's like, fine, because he's God. So that's very helpful. Uh, but you are there like, isn't this fun? And I'm yoked to Jesus. And, it's, and you think you're doing something special and you are helping uh, in your own right. But it's about what's happening on the journey ahead more than it's about the load that you're bearing. He's carrying it so that this Side-by-side, life can happen. And that's the image I want you to get when you come to this text. Jesus' invitation here is, at its core, an invitation to travel through life at his side. To step out of life as you have known it into a life of soul rest. And I know that this is a common text. Like I said, it's stitched in different places in people's houses that I know and whatever. I think it's wonderful. Um, But I think for a lot of us who've been following Jesus for a while, this becomes like a numbing scripture that we hear a lot. It's like, cool, come to me, all who are whatever, and and maybe it doesn't have the impact it's short. Or maybe we hear this this, uh, text read and we're going like, man, but it just doesn't feel true to me. It just doesn't feel like it's a, I don't know that I've really experienced that. And even I felt that way so much in so many different times and spaces in my life. And I think that's largely because we have yet to embrace the lifestyle of the yoke. 
hidden in plain sight in this invitation of Jesus is what Dallas Willard calls the secret of the easy yoke. And he writes this about that. In this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, and turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail. John Mark, our pastor at Bridgetown, summarized it this way, way more helpful than poor Dallas Willard. Um, God rest him, we're all going to be friends in heaven. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Now, it's easy to read these words of him in Matthew 11 and to go, I want that life, I want to be burden free, I want the benefits of the yoke, I really do. I'd love to have just like a casual, fun conversation, but I'd like to come and go from the yoke as I please. I'd like to wiggle in and out. When I'm feeling stressed, he can, I'll come back and remember that he's pulling the load. Or maybe I'll do some of the carrying sometimes and I'll take it from him and I'll just do it. And then the relationship's kind of weird or whatever. When, when Jesus is inviting us into this, he's saying it's actually a shift in how you do all of life. Every part of you has to be reoriented. Of course, it doesn't happen overnight. But the question we have to ask, especially those of you who are disciples of Jesus, is have you taken on his habits and his rhythm and his practices? Does your life look like his? How he lived it, because otherwise it's going to get awkward, you know. It's already awkward that I'm 5'9 and Naomi's two and a half feet tall. It's already clunky. Now, if Naomi decides to sit down while Honeybee is plowing something, that's going to be a real struggle for me, right? Honey, this poor little thing's going to get whacked in the head. You're imagining all the things, right? I'm pulling the yoke. She's sitting down, picking a flower, and things are, that's the image. You're, you're bad. You know, you need to get it with the lifestyle, which means we're always moving forward, which means we're always moving in a direction towards something. Now, I'm carrying the load, but you are with me in it. And when we don't adopt the lifestyle, we don't actually get to engage the meaning and the significance of the yoke that is placed on us. To follow and adopt the lifestyle of Jesus is to embrace an entirely new way of living. And it's one that's marked by peace, and it's marked by freedom. We know those people, we've met them, those people who walk in that reality. We, we encounter them and go, like, what the heck? My sister Marco Poloed me, which is like a thing, and um, she Marco Poloed me yesterday, and she's like, I met this woman, and she was so crazy. She lives, like, in the scariest places of the Middle East. She would never, and she's like, and she looks like, she's like, well, anyway, that, I was catching myself because I'm going to say something I regret on a podcast, but um, she's like, you would, she's very meek. You know, long hair and meek. And she's like, you never know that she is this fiercely wild, filled with the Holy Ghost kind of person. And she's like, we went to dinner, and this one was just spewing fire at me. And um, I'm like, yeah. And she's like, these people are marked. These people have the shalom of God all over them. And this is what it means when we're doing that, when we're actually embracing the lifestyle. It will be Jesus doing all the heavy lifting so you can just rest assured that that's what he wants to do. But it will be at his pace. And it's about you just entering into that space with him, figuring out what it means to live as Jesus did so that the yoke is able to move forward and accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. Now, you've done really well. The text is over. And, um, and now we're going to get to the fun stuff. Are you ready? Another 45 minutes and we'll be out of here. Having nachos. Uh, a couple things. Um, in this text, I think we find a rhythm um, or more than that, a progression kind of throughout the text. I think it's helpful for us to know. 
And I think in noticing it, we will actually get to the heart of what Jesus wants. There is a rhythm to life with Jesus that we see surfacing here. And it's for both the disciple of Jesus, people who have said, yes, I'm following him, I'm following after Jesus, and for those who are still like, I'm not sure. This is a both and kind of thing. This is for all of us, hopefully, sitting in this room tonight. The first, I believe, is um, a starting point like this. It's, it's letting go of your idea of right, which is my absolute favorite um, and the easiest one for me. So I have very little weak opinions, and it doesn't even matter. Um, uh, my friend put it this way. Um, in order to receive the true gospel, you have to let go of the one you're holding on to. And um, what a profound uh, statement that, that basically means we have to let go of our ideas of what it means to follow Jesus and how we think it should be and how we think we should be feeling and experiencing things and, and settle into his reality of what he has already set before us. Um, my, I don't know that my mom would say it, but my, my grandmother would definitely say we're small beings with big britches, you know? And it's like we think we, think we know, but we don't actually no, the great old, old to age, the great age old temptation of this life is to believe that our way is the best way, and to believe that we know better and best even when it comes to God. From the garden all the way to now, uh, we know that the temptation is and will be that we are our own and final authority when it comes to things. And you may think, no, I'm not. That doesn't. That's not a big struggle for me. But I think if we pressed into the deeper spaces, just maybe we'd realize that there's a little bit more conflict in our spirits than we think. Um, I think this idea of giving up our right to be right is harder, particularly because of the culture that we live in today. Culture, and especially, I think, Christian culture in this moment, praises the narrative of your preference. It's about your best experience. It's about what you prefer. It's whatever makes you feel good in the moment that informs your highest value. And we do that in churches in different ways, and it's not a critique on Van City, but y'all could really clean some things up here. I don't know where Josh is. There he is. Yeah. So I'm just, that's a joke because it's not true. It's a joke because I just bombed. Um, <laughs> at Bridgetown, we could really clean some things up, but that's what I want to say. But all to say, we do. We kind of live in this culture where it's like, I didn't feel that, though. I just didn't feel this, or I, I don't feel like going to community, or I don't feel, and everything's based on the sensation that we get when we show up to the place, or I mean, I'm not even a coffee snob because I don't even know how to be because I put so much good things in my coffee to make it taste like a sweet treat. Um, that's how I prefer coffee. Um, but, but even we show places where we're like, oh, this coffee is like water. Even I've done it where I'm like, is this Folgers? And I'm like, who am I? I don't even know. If, I don't even know if I've had Folgers. I'm sure I have. I've been to the Cracker Barrel. I don't know. Like, I'm sure that's what we're drinking. But all that to say pleasure has become the barometer of truth. And pleasure, as so many of us know, is a fickle God. And when we find ourselves at the center of our own reality, we will undoubtedly succumb to our own blind spots. Ultimately, our pride will give way to fear and anxiety and doubt. It's why we all operate at some level, or at least our culture is, with this low-grade anxiety thing. It's because we're at the center of it. Because we're trying to play God and we're not actually him, and that makes things really tricky. The burden of our will will actually keep us from experiencing life as we were built to experience it. At the beginning of our text, Jesus unashamedly called out preference against the reality of the kingdom. 
And it's clear that the journey to following Jesus starts with giving up our own idea of what we think is right or how things should be in exchange. By the way, this is the mark of the kingdom, that it's actually an exchange. It's not something being taken away from you or something stripped down from you where you have nothing left. It's a holy exchange where God gives back to you the beauty and the reality and the power of the kingdom. doesn't mean you'll always understand everything that's happening. And will you always think God has a great opinion of things? No, he is sometimes so annoying that way. He's, I'm like, I can help you. And he's like, stay back. And I'm like, but I, okay, um, right? Doesn't mean you're going to have to entrust yourself to someone, which is, by the way, a very scary thing. Yes, absolutely. Can all those things, and will they be costly? They will totally be costly. But if they don't happen, you will find yourself exhausted and maybe even dead. And I mean that in the spiritual and the emotional and even for some of us in the physical sense. Life with us at the center is a life destined for death, and Jesus knew that. Letting go of your idea of what is right isn't about becoming a numb robot, which is what none of us want to do. It's about embracing the reality that is laced with wholeness and actual rest for your soul. It's a returning not a, not a leaving, and a, I have to leave all this behind. It's an actual returning. If you look at it theologically, if you understand the framework with which you're actually operating in, the spiritual reality that you're operating in, you are actually returning to life as it was supposed to be. You're not moving towards life as it could be. It's returning back to how God ordered things for the purpose of your flourishing and your life. And in returning, we find rest. Next, you have to allow God to tell you the truth. And again, Seems easy enough, but just get alone with him on a bench somewhere, it's going to be a hard struggle. In our text, we see Jesus boldly calling out the cities who were not following him. He didn't do it to humiliate them. That's never in his calling out, but he did it to invite them into something better. Judgment in our text paints this picture of Jesus actually separating out something. It's actually this imagery in the Greek of dividing out of like one thing here and another thing here. And in our text, Jesus is actually separating out those who follow him and those who do not. And he does the same with us. When we allow God to tell us the truth, we are inviting him to show us the reality about the condition of our hearts. Are we following him or are we just fascinated by him? And it's easy as a disciple of Jesus to be like, I'm totally on board, totally into him. I, I've done the whole like camp thing. I burned some CDs. I did whatever the thing was that we all did in the 90s. I don't know. Anyway, I was on board. I'm a pastor. I do all this stuff. And yet, when I actually get alone with the Lord, there are things in my life right now I am more fascinated by with him in that space than I am willing to actually follow him to do. He's like, you're enthralled with the idea, but you're not willing to actually obey and enter into that space. And for disciples of Jesus, this is what it means to allow him to tell us the truth. To tell us the truth is to tell us what's actually going on in here. To sit long enough to hear what he's saying to us about the condition of our hearts. Are we letting him tell us the truth about our relationship to him? Because he gets to speak too, you know. It's not like a one-sided marriage thing, which by the way, it doesn't work. It's two people talking and engaging. And he gets to say, this isn't working. That's his right in the covenant that we're in, Right? Yes, so here we're saying we're allowing you to tell us the truth about what's going on. Are, are we allowing him to tell us the truth about what we watched last night on Netflix or not? Are we allowing him to tell us the truth about our boyfriend or our girlfriend or how far we're going, how far we're not going, or how I spoke to my husband or how I didn't speak to my husband? Are we allowing him to tell us the truth in all these areas of our life? 
This is a question for the disciple of Jesus, for those of us who would say, yeah, absolutely, God, you have access to tell me the truth, but just give me five minutes, which is what I do all the time. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I love the truth. It sets me free. I totally have a shirt that says it, you know, or whatever. And, and at the same time, I'm like, but don't tell me the truth about that, that place in my heart because I don't want to know. I am not ready for you to go there. And in this space, we see that this is a really important part to the rhythm of following Jesus. When we allow him to tell us the truth, we are responding to what scriptures call grace, which is an unmerited gift. And, um, and that can be kind of a weird thing, so let me paint a picture for you since we're doing such a good job of that tonight. If you think about judgment or you think about God telling you the truth, it's easy to get paranoid or whatever. But you guys know um, Josh and Abby have this little girl named Isla who... It's my spirit baby. I just, like, see her, and I'm like, that's what I want to be. That's who I want to be. There's a lot of stuff about her that I really like. She's unfiltered. She's just wonderful. But if, if I live, we were all down at the Vancouver River or whatever. Is that what it's called? Lake. Vancouver River Lake. And um, we've been there. And um, Isla was, didn't have any of her floaties on, and she was moving herself towards the river all by herself alone, 50 feet or 100 feet from us. And I started to scream out at Isla and said, Isla, get back here. Get back. You cannot go into the water. You're not allowed to go. No, ma'am. We're not. Whatever. Or whatever. I mean, I'm, it's not like a dog, but you're just screaming at the child. And just, no. It is no less gracious of me to do that than if I were to actually go into the river after she had gone into it and pull her out. Both are... Both the warning and the rescue is the gift to the child. Both of those things are valuable in that space. We don't measure it as such, but that's actually what's happening. Me calling out to Island saying, the truth is if you go in there without your floaties, things are going to happen. The monsters are going to get you, whatever. Whatever the thing is, right? And I mean, that's mercy. That's an act of grace towards Isla. It's Isla, don't, get, don't do this or it'll hurt you. And if Isla turns around and listens and we have a little soda or whatever, we're like, cool. But if Isla doesn't listen and I go in after her, it's just as gracious of me to go grab her little body and pull her out and say, no, we can't do that. Like, you don't know how to swim yet. Or maybe she does, but I don't know. But if she didn't know how, that's what, how it would go. Does that make sense? Jesus calling us out, calling, telling us the truth is just this act of grace towards us saying, don't do that. So that you don't get into the water and get to places you shouldn't be going. Places you're not able to go. This is an act of love from a father. This is what happens when we let him tell us the truth. The hard thing is we just have to get past the reality that we think, again, we know what's best. That's where those two begin to bump up against each other. Well, no, I like saw people swim on TV one time, so it's no big deal. I'll just go in here. Which, I, it sounds insane, but it's like we do that crap all the time, right? And this is what Jesus is after. Okay, next. We see that we have to embrace the reality that Jesus is the only way to God. And you're like, I'm here. That makes a lot of sense to me. And again, simple enough. The way um, to the kingdom, what we find in this space, is the way to the kingdom is exclusive in as much as it is inclusive. And I know those two words are riddled with emotion, but I don't want it to be. Um, the reality is the invitation in our text is and always will be for all people. It is inclusive by nature. This message Jesus is extending is for all people, but it is in exclusive in that it comes only through Jesus himself. And our text makes it clear that to know Jesus is to know the Father and that through him we are invited to come and experience life as it was always intended to be. Now in today's culture, it's easy to want to mitigate this reality, even in small ways in our mind, even for the disciple of Jesus who've been following Jesus for a long time. But embracing Jesus as the only way is inescapable for the true follower and disciple of Jesus. Now, again, 
disciple of Jesus, I want to talk to you for a second because there's a little bit of this in here where I could excuse this way and be like, look, I went to seminary. I, um, I preach. I get to, to be a pastor, all these fun things. And I could say, like, this is no problem. Absolutely, Jesus is the way to the Father. And yet, when I was doing this teaching, the Lord is like, hello, let's talk about some stuff. And I was like, no, thanks. And, um, and then we came back and we talked about stuff. And one of the things that he was saying is, you don't often embrace me as the only way to the Father. Sometimes you go to other people and think that's the way to the Father. Or, or sometimes, Bethany, you go to Netflix and think that's going to lead you to the Father, which is actually the place you want peace, you want freedom from the, the aching in your soul or the sadness you feel in your soul or whatever. And you're going to all these other places, and the scriptures call that idolatry. And so for those of us who are in the kingdom, those of us who are disciples of Jesus, this is where we actually have to check ourselves and say, am I actually embracing that Jesus is the only one who can put things back to rights? Or am I allowing my soul to feed off of these other spaces and places that are not him, they're cheap imitations of what he has to offer to us and for us? And this is the question I think we have to ask ourselves just at a deeper level. There is only one way to the Father, only one way to know the one who has made you. There's only one way to satisfy that aching, that burden in your soul, and it is through Jesus. And he will always be ready to move towards you, always be ready to, to tell you the truth if you'll just respond. Now, the final thing, because we're coming to the home stretch. Are you ready? It's, I'm not dying of heat stroke, which I thought was absolutely going to happen. Uh, is to do this, is to respond to the invitation and to come. Everything in our text leads up to this moment, and the invitation is to come. And it's almost, I think, as if the text is doing a bit of a crescendo. Do you know what that is? It's like, yeah? It's kind of like that. I hope that's on the recording, as well as my, my breath blow or whatever. <laughs> Jesus begins by speaking to those who had flat out rejected the message both he and John had been preaching. This is like, this is, listen to the crescendo. It's like, nah, nah. And then he specifically calls out those who thought they were part of the kingdom simply because they had experienced his miracles and presence. And then he declares once again that he is Messiah and the music is swelling. And he's saying, I'm the one who can give you true life and I'm the one who can give you true rest. And then as if the music gets the loudest it has been, he invites everyone to come again. And he says, come to me. All of you who rejected me, come to me. All of you who don't know me yet, who've just experienced bits and pieces of my presence, come. Come to me and see the Father. Come to me, and I will give you rest in exchange for the burdens of life that you are bearing alone. Jesus wasn't having a bad day when he wrote this text. He wasn't being cranky when he was speaking to the people. He was once again pleading with them on his way to Jerusalem that they would come and find life in him. And he was screaming metaphorically, at them and saying to them, come, all of you who are weary. And he knew them. He said, I know you're weary. I know your souls need rest. This is an invitation to salvation, to life. This is me extending one more time. I've called it out. I've seen you. All those things are his way of saying, I see all of you, and yet I'm still saying, come and experience healing in the deepest parts of your soul. Experience life as it was intended to be, and Jesus is just screaming out, Matthew eleven twenty eight, and he's saying, come, would you just come? Now for me, um, you know, sitting in this text, it was like a week and a half ago, um, a week, two weeks ago, a week ago, a week ago I preached it, then the week before, are you tracking, a week ago I wrote it, a week, anyway, you do the math, you're probably math people. Um, and I had had a really crappy week that week, just emotionally really hard. Um, I, I had had, like, I got really triggered the first couple days of that week, which I haven't gotten triggered 
that badly in like 10 years. Like just weird stuff, trauma from my past, just stuff came up and it was a really hard week. And then come to find out, I wrote the teaching on um, Thursday, was panicking, um, trying to get this teaching out by five o'clock to our elders, called Josh and was like, is this trash, you know? And he's like, you're fine, take a breath. So I'm walking out, I had to go have a, a tough conversation uh, with someone I love dearly. And I'm walking out to my car, and I'm like, cool, finish the teaching, breathing. And um, my car is gone because, um, because it's first Thursday, which is a stupid thing we do in Portland. It's like a street fair where they make you move your cars because they want to put their stuff in your parking lot. So, um, so that happened. So I came out, my car got towed, this whole thing. And I'm just like, ah, very bad, no good day or whatever the book says. And, um, and the whole week I was like, God, how does this apply to me? I just can't figure it out. And then very quickly, he showed me. For me, God had, there was this, this thing, this part of this hard conversation I had to have, and I can't go into detail. I don't really want to because it's not for you. It's for me. Um, but there was this idea in my head a couple weeks before this bad week where the Lord had been talking to me and saying, like, hey, you have this idea about this relationship and what it means and what, what it's supposed to be like and it's safe or whatever. You've made some declarations about just just being right, and a lot of other rightness came from it, like, I'm just going to do this because I know, and like, I just know the rhetoric, I know what you're asking me to do, and he's like, you're not listening, I'm like, no, 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 I got it, don't worry about it, I'll see you when you get home, and, um, and so he did that, and God began to talk to me like a month ago, and it's just like, hey, there's some things in your life where you're just saying you're right, and you're not willing to hear what I'm saying because I actually am trying to, to tell you the truth about something, so eventually I was like, yeah, we can put those things on the table. Let's meet. Let's have breakfast. And you can put yours on the table, and I'll put my ideas of right on the table, and we'll just see. We'll just see. Let's just be open to both. And so we did that, and mine got shoved off the table pretty quickly. And, and so I was like, oh, okay, so God, you're starting to tell me um, that my idea of right actually wasn't right, even though I had, like, really good reasons why it should be. And then God began over those next couple weeks telling me the truth about some things of the condition of my heart, places he wanted to bring healing from my past that I was like, aren't we done with it? Because that happened and it's over. I've been eight years in therapy, if not more. I mean, that's a long time, you know, it's a long time. And I, and I was like, God, I should be well. And if you tell me the truth that I think you're going to tell me, I, I will hear the lie that I am the same person I was 10 years ago. And so I just avoided this truth part for a long time. I'm like, let's just roundabout, soft way. He was like, let me tell you the truth. I'm like, give me five more minutes. And that just took a little bit of time. Anyway, all that to say, he eventually told me the truth about myself and some things he wanted to uproot in my life and how it was connected in some relationships in my life. And then um, he wanted, so then it, there was a call to embrace, and I'm not making this stuff up. I'm telling you, this is exactly what he did to me. This is so weird. And he was like, hey, so the only way to get through this is to embrace Jesus in this space because it's going to be hard. You're going to have to you're going to have to lose some stuff in this space. Some things are going to have to be cut off. You're going to have to do deeper work. You're going to have to look at stuff you don't want to look at. And, and he was like, so just come. So Jesus, come to Jesus. He's going to, and I'm like, that's cool. I'm going to do some Netflix. And I'm going to spend some time with a lot of my friends. And I'll just talk it up, talk it up. And legitimately just avoiding him completely and entirely. It's embarrassing. And, um, and yet eventually he just began to woo me. He has to wake me up in the middle of the night to talk to me because I'm talking most of the day. So he did that enough to where I got the point where he was like, hey, you need to come to me. And as soon as I came to him, I broke down. I just was like, I'm so tired. And what I didn't realize, this fantasy I'd been living in, is that my idea of being right and allowing God to tell me the truth, in that space I actually believed the illusion that I'm not burdened. <laughs> when in reality my sweet father is like actually coming to me and saying, like, I can see this whole thing on your back. 
and, and the reason I'm trying to get you to let go of your idea of was right, because I'm trying to get you to tell you the truth so that I, I can reveal to you that you don't actually have to bear this burden. This thing is crushing you, and you don't even know it. It's taking things from your life that it, it's not supposed to take. And in my mercy, I'm coming to you and doing these things so that I can get your attention. And then finally he said, come. Come to me. And, and as soon as I did it, I'm not kidding, and I'm a week and a half now into this, it was like this transference when I finally just said, like, fine. And I realized in my coming that I was way more burdened and hurting than I thought. Am I in pain today? Yes. Because of the choices I've had to make? Yes. All day. All week. All whatever. It's, is it still hard? It's absolutely still hard. But, but I am not, I am Naomi in the story. I'm not honeybee. <laughs> He's honeybee. And in this space that we're in right now where he took on this burden that I didn't even know I was carrying. See, that's the irony. A lot of times we just don't know we're carrying it until we allow him to do these things. When he comes stirring, that's what he's after. He is bearing the weight of my burden. I don't have to be afraid. It's only going to lead to more life, and it's led to a lot of intimacy this week, more than I've had in in a while, because I need him in a different way, because I'm coming to him like a child, and because I'm not blinded by the yoke of my own burden. The invitation for us tonight is to do the same. The invitation for you as people who are hearing the word of God is to respond to him in the same way. Maybe you don't know what it is, and that's fair. It's absolutely fair. But maybe you do know. Maybe you're like, man, this burden feels like a burden. And the invitation for you tonight is to actually come to him. Or maybe you're like, I don't know. There's this thing I've always had a question about, and maybe God's trying to do this stuff and talk to me, but I'm like, let's not, or whatever. And the invitation tonight is just to slow down long enough to engage the spirit.